The Old Testament reading from Genesis 9, 20 through 27. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Well, good morning, church family. As you all know, my name is Herman Armstrong, and I am uh, well now officially a church planter resident here at Highlands Church, and I praise God for that. And I feel blessed uh, to bring the word of God to you uh, this morning. So, um, when Jordan asked me to uh, consider doing a sermon in this hard topic series, um, my hope was that I would receive a topic that would be uh, very light and would not take me out of my comfort zone or make me uncomfortable at all. And here we are. <laughs> but seriously, I do want to express before we move into the message this morning that um, I just want to express my deep love for all of you, um, my church family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, my prayer uh, this morning as the word goes forth is, uh, as it always should be, that um, we are all edified uh, by the truth of the word of God and uh, most of all that our Lord uh, Jesus is, is uh, glorified. Pray with me. Lord, uh, you are good and we thank you uh, for this time to come together and uh, worship you and a uh, fellowship and around the truth of your word. We ask right now that you would speak to us um, through the power of your word and through your Holy Spirit. Lord, um, convict us, encourage us, um, compel us to act on the truth of what your word teaches us to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the outset of our message this morning, I want to recognize that some of you may be wondering about the helpfulness or usefulness uh, of this question. Our question uh, this morning in this hard series on the Bible, uh, hard sayings of the Bible is, does the Bible endorse slavery? Uh, perhaps some of you are thinking uh, other topics like divorce and other things that we have discussed in the past may seem more standard or relevant. You may be wondering, are we veering too far off course? If anyone is kind of thinking along those lines, I ask that you indulge me just for a few moments, please. Uh, there is most certainly relevance here as we think about unity um, in the body of Christ. 
So I want you for a moment to kind of use your imaginations and picture yourself sitting, sitting across the table uh, having coffee with someone that you just, you just met very recently. Uh, this person knows that you are a Christian and they have questions about the Bible. Uh, you all begin to converse and they ask you this question. Uh, does the Bible endorse slavery? And of course, we're thinking thought of the, the oppression of, of certain groups of people by other groups of people. And so you quickly respond, no, of course not. Um, and then this person asks for your thoughts on a few pieces of very relevant historical data. There's a quote uh, from H. Shelton Smith, who was a professor of American Christianity at Duke Divinity School. In his book, In His Image But, he writes, by the early decades of the 18th century, when printed sermons and tracts on the subject began to appear in considerable numbers, it is clear that church leaders, with rare exceptions, viewed the enslavement of Africans as compatible with the Christian faith. My second set of brackets there is used to uh, try to block some potentially sensitive language. Now, the point here is not to paint a negative light or paint the church in a bad light. And certainly, uh, history shows us that during slavery, there were certainly Christians who fought on the abolitionist side. But the point here is simply to address the fact that there was wide acceptance and encouragement of slavery by the church at this point in history. So let's say this person you're talking to brings another fact to your attention. In the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., there is displayed a copy of what came to be known as the Slave Bible. This widely circulated book was used in Christian missions to convert slaves while still promoting oppression by removing anything that encouraged freedom. It was heavily redacted down to just a few books and select chapters. So for instance, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery in Genesis is included, but the story of the Israelites' release uh, from slavery in the Exodus is not. Also included is our Old Testament reading from Genesis 9 on Noah's grandson being cursed, which in actuality has nothing to do with African people, but has been used to promote oppression. Most of the Old Testament and a heavy portion of the New in this version of the Bible was removed swiftly and very intently with an evil purpose. Further, a verse that was paramount Promoting oppression in the American slave system was Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. I want to read it in the King James Version as that is what it would have been used back then. Servants, or well, this word, Greek word doulos, meaning slave, uh, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart, 
as unto Christ. So this is the hard saying that we're dealing with this morning. This is the hard saying that we have to wrestle with or grapple with to some degree. And so this brings us back to our opening question, does the Bible endorse slavery? So as we look at this question again, the real hard truth is that the Bible was most certainly used, maybe even misused, misconstrued as a tool of oppression in American slavery. And that has far-reaching and present impacts. There are historically black denominations born out of this period of American slavery that have always known separation and thus today still don't trust the majority culture. There is a growing movement of anti-Christian false religions that pull people away from Christianity based on this erroneous understanding that the Bible was used as a tool of oppression or that the Bible actually speaks that, which it does not. But all of this misunderstanding creates a foothold for division and confusion for the enemy. And this is why we must deal with this today, church. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with these hard facts from history? How, how do we uh, think through this and work through this? How, how do we handle issues like this? And, and not just in words, but also in our actions. Well, as we have come to understand in this series, context is king. Context is king. So let's try to understand some background about this verse uh, before we move forward. First, the slavery that Paul addresses is not the same institution as American slavery. Key features that distinguish first century Roman slavery from American slavery are uh, the Roman system was not based on race. Uh, in first century Roman slavery, some were born into slavery. However, others may have chosen a position to pay off debts. First century slaves in the Roman Empire could own property. It was possible for Roman slaves to buy their freedom if they could amass the means. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul even encourages slaves to pursue this option if they're able to do so. And so in that regard, uh, it is very unlike the chattel slavery system in American uh, slavery, where slaves were legal property owned for life. Furthermore, slaves in, the, in first century Rome ran the gamut of occupations and education, some even being highly educated, such as physicians or lawyers, at times even being more educated than their masters. And so this first century institution known as slavery could almost be seen as a, a quasi-social class. However, the, the, the common factor between both types of slavery, first century Rome and American slavery, was the use of force to keep slaves in subjection. It was common practice in the first century for masters to beat 
or, e or even mistreat their slaves to prevent rebellion and uprising. Now, another point, perhaps more important to our conversation, is that the recognition of an institution in the Bible is not an endorsement of it. Hear that this morning. The recognition of an institution by the Bible is not an endorsement of that institution. Slavery was quite common in the first century, and it's believed by scholars that up to one-third of the Ephesian population were slaves. Paul is addressing the people of his time. Our text is part of a larger section of chapters 5 and 6 in Ephesians, where Paul is addressing relationships in the home. Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. Paul's words to slaves and masters here and in other sections of the New Testament is not an endorsement of slavery. He is simply speaking into the cultural milieu of his day. People own slaves in Paul's day, and he is addressing this issue. So let's look at our verse in context. Look at the greater context of Ephesians 5. Bond servants also could be understood to be the word slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. I'll pause there, verse 8. Now, because of their station in life, and the harsh treatment that they endured, it was the norm for slaves to have a great deal of resentment, maybe even bitterness or hatred uh, toward their owners, and thus to work in this manner, in a half-hearted manner, in a duplicitous manner, even cheating and, and stealing their owners. And so this is what Paul speaks into, addressing homes where people have now been born again, freed from the slavery of sin, and are now called to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The idea of fear and trembling is shown in living out their calling as those who are ultimately subject to Christ. Their bond servants now are slaves to Jesus. In one sense, in a very real sense, Paul takes the earthly master out of the picture. Even in forced labor, one can live out their calling in Christ by choosing to work for Christ and not for man. Paul speaks to these slaves and wants them to understand and know that in the end, in eternity, Jesus will reward his people not based on their social status, but based on the good that they have done in this life and serving him with 
a sincere heart. Let's look on to Ephesians 6 9, Paul's words for masters. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who was both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Paul gives a similar command, maybe even a more stringent one, to believing masters. Remember, he's speaking in the households now who have been transformed and are now born-again believers. Paul gives this command now to believing masters, do the same to them. He's repeating the command. As believers, these masters now are also subject to Christ. They must also now live under his lordship. They also must live with fear and trembling, with sincere hearts unto Christ. As fellow believers with their slaves, they are also fellow bondservants of the Lord. They also must live as to the Lord and not unto man which means that they can no longer use brutality to keep their slaves in submission. So Paul encourages slaves to work ultimately for Christ because he is the one who will reward slaves and masters justly. Paul warns earthly masters against harsh behavior. Because ultimately, there is no distinction between master and slave. In Christ, he is the master. He is the Lord. He is the ruler of us all. Thus, Paul's words do not endorse this slavery system or any slavery system of any kind. Following the command for Christians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians, essentially Paul's teaching levels the playing field. The fact that he even writes to slaves in the first century directly shows his recognition of their humanity. Paul speaks to slaves and masters alike essentially saying your relationship must change. No more of this overbearing nature and this abuse. No more of this resentment and backbiting. Paul says your relationship must change because you have been changed by the gospel. That's his message here. Now, I want to move on to a sort of a high-level application and then narrow it down to some specifics. All believers should serve Christ sincerely. Paul touches on this as well in a similar passage to slaves and masters in Colossians. Regardless of your station in life, through the Spirit's power and influence, you can engage in relationships, even hard relationships, even extremely hard relationships, with a sincere heart unto Christ. All believers should let go of bitterness and malice toward each other. Paul speaks into this perpetual system of um, oppression, uh, resentment, fear, deceit, and abuse 
But even in the midst of all of that, the love of Christ can intervene. Even in the most tumultuous situations and relationships, Christ shows no partiality and he can bring peace. It is widely believed that these Christian commands to slaves and masters greatly contributed to the ending of first century slavery in the Roman world. Because masters realized, people who owned slaves realized they could no longer oppress their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And all believers should live to serve each other. The point Paul makes here uh, is that Christ is our great master. And we're reminded of this in Matthew, where Jesus says, they came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Somewhat paradoxically, our great master is also the greatest servant. Even in speaking to some of his disciples, Jesus taught that whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The same word used here, doulos. We pursue true greatness, church, true Christ-like character by humbly using our lives to help and serve others. This is how we mimic our master, Jesus Christ. This is our calling as members of the body of Christ. We are called to serve each other. We are called to follow Christ's model of pursuing and seeking each other and edifying one another and lifting each other up to give our lives for the betterment of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So Christ calls us to serve each other, regardless of our, our state, regardless of our status or what have you. So here's one way. There are many ways we can serve each other. Here's one way that you can serve the body and lift up your brothers and sisters in the Lord. A text like this and the way Paul speaks into it reminds us that Christ destroys the social constructs that divide us. As Paul speaks into the situation, he reminds us of that uh, very openly, very intently, very directly. Christ destroys the social constructs that divide us. Every culture, every society has them. Lines are drawn. Figuratively, but sometimes even uh, physically or geographically, that separate people into different categories. Some higher, some lower, some more respected, some less respected. But Christ desires unity in his body. And that calls for us to be countercultural from the world. In him, in Christ, there are no distinctions, different ethnicities. Differing social statuses, male and female, Christ sees us all the same in the sense that there is no hierarchy. So I want to lovingly challenge you this morning. Think about your closest friends. Do you have any close friends, highlands that, that are outside of your age range, your ethnicity? your social circle, your normal social circle? 
If not, then why? Our region, the St. Louis region, is plagued by division. The phenomenon of the Del Mar divide has been reported on internationally because of the stark separation that it promotes. There are many deep-seated and deeply rooted mindsets all throughout our region that promote hate and division. And only the love of Jesus Christ can bridge these gaps. So I lovingly, church, challenge you this morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to intentionally seek relationships that cross ethnic, geographic, and social lines. Be intentional, pray, and ask God for these opportunities. Visit a church in a part of town that you've never been to. Speak to that person at work, even if you're not sure how it will go. Act, reach out, move towards someone to promote unity in the Bible, in the body of Christ. <laughs> so in summation, the Bible stands vindicated once again. The Bible does not endorse the oppression of one group of people over another. Rather, in Christ, in our freedom from slavery to sin, it reminds us of the equality that we all have in the Lord. The Bible does not command believers, does command believers, the word of God commands believers to live in subjection to Christ. We serve our master by following his example of serving others, by laying our lives down for other people. And so that imaginary person I asked you to visualize earlier, I lovingly challenge you to make them real. You can serve others in the body of Christ by reaching out across the normal lines that, that block us and, and um, push us away from other people. You can serve others in the body of Christ by pursuing relationships outside of your comfort zone for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, you are good, and your mercy certainly endures forever. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we look at the truth of your word, we are reminded, Lord, that you are a God of love and peace and unity, and you desire us to follow uh, your model of laying our lives down for our brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, to be countercultural um, and seek after those um, in the body who need our love, who need, uh, who need us to, um, who need to be loved by you through us. We should be conduits to our brothers and sisters of your agape love. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>